Okay, shalom friends. Welcome back to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. I am so happy that you are here. This episode is actually a repost of a class that I gave. It was probably about two years ago. One of the first uh, classes and episodes that was posted right here on the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. But I'm really excited and looking forward to reposting it and sharing it with you again. And I want to give you a little bit of context and tell you why I'm reposting it and why I'm so excited about it. So for those of you who are following along in the podcast or on my social media or you know, to all my friends out there, you know that Baruch Hashem, thank God with tremendous gratitude to Hashem. I am now in the middle of the book tour of my second book. It was released right after Purim. Um, the second book is called The Four Elements of Inner Freedom. And it is a book that builds on the idea of my first book, how we're all connected to the four elements. Our character is connected to the four elements. But this book is connected to the Pesach, to the Passover story, showing how the entire story, the entire story of the Exodus is a story about us breaking free from the personal shackles of our own life from the things that that cause us to to struggle. So that's the the concept of the second book as you <clears throat> may have heard me speak about in the past. But the concept of the book, the overall structure of the book was something that I had discovered actually before I put out the first book. Believe it or not, it was really right after I submitted the manuscript of the first book to the publisher that I was learning together with my Chavrusa, with my study partner, and we were learning some of the works of, of Hasidut, Svasemes, Rabbi Nachman of Breslau, for those of you who are familiar. And I came across this concept and I was so excited because it was so deeply connected to my first book, this connection between the story of leaving Egypt and the four elements. And I was so excited. It was such a gift to have that discovery literally within, within a couple of days uh, after the, 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 um, the manuscript was submitted. So I was really, really excited about it. And I immediately turned it into a series. And that class series became the impetus to write the second book. And it was right here sitting on the podcast. And I said, you know what? We're in the middle of the book tour, trying to get the book out. So I think it would be really, really interesting to sort of bring back those classes and have you listeners, especially lots of you were not listening to the podcast back then. So to have you listen to it. So I'm going to post the first episode right here. I'll put the link to the other three, which are you can scroll down below and you can see it there. But I'll put the other three here in the show notes for those of you who want easy access. And then I'll also bump those other ones up over the course of the next couple of days. We have more great guests coming up, but I think that it will be uh, it's it'll be just a great time to bring back those previous episodes. And um, lots of you have already bought my new book. Thank you, thank you, thank you a hundred times. It means so much to me. For those of you who did not, please, I hope that you'll check it out. You can look at it on my website, levx.org slash four hyphen elements, easy to navigate on the website, or you can find it on the publisher's website, mosaicapress.com. It's in all Jewish bookstores being sold on Amazon, wherever you get your Jewish books. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. That's a little bit of context. And I hope that you enjoy this class series. It's four short classes. And uh, it, it, it was fun then, and it's fun again to share it with you. So enjoy. This is the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast, where we explore the beauty of Judaism, the depth of Jewish wisdom, and how to live a more empowered life. All right, so 
We're, we begin this new series, very exciting. I, I love this time of year. It's my favorite time of year. And um, when we're preparing for the Seder and going through the Pesach, the Passover story each year, every year there's more. Every year there's a, we can go deeper. There's more to say. There's more to think about. It's really, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And I'm excited about this series. I was thinking for several weeks before um, what we can do a little bit different this year because we did have the Passover Kabbalah class last year, if you remember. And I wanted to do something special, really go deep because we've been learning together for a long time. So this series uh, is called The Four Cups of Personal Breakthrough. And what we're going to try to do in this series is to go through the different stages of the entire Yitziat Mitzrayim, the entire Exodus story, and show how those different stages relate to different aspects of our own personal breakthroughs that we're trying to make in our own life. We, we say this every single year, and this is so important. The Baal Shem Tov says that the Hebrew word Mitzrayim, Egypt in the Torah is called Mitzrayim. It's an unusual name. It doesn't sound at all. I mean, I don't know, you know, the, the history of the, of the word Egypt, where that comes from. But, you know, what, what is the word Mitzrayim? Why is there a country called Mitzrayim? What's the history behind that name? And the Baal Shem Tov and others write extensively that the name Mitzrayim comes from the Hebrew word Meitzarim. And Meitzar is, means a place that's narrow, a place that's constricted, a place that's constrained. And because of that, they understand that the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, Yitziat Mitzrayim means leaving Yitziat means leaving Mitzrayim is Egypt. They understand that the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, of leaving Egypt, is a personal story, a story that we should all be able to relate to and look at our own life and look at the things that are constricting us, making us feel like we're not living to our full potential. And the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is supposed to relate to us in that way, that as we're connecting to that story, we see ourselves making those personal breakthroughs in our life. We see that every single day for us can be a Yitzhak Mitzrayim. That every single difficult situation that we're going through in our life can be a Yitzhak Mitzrayim, can be an Exodus story. Because that's what's woven into that story. And, and, and obviously, like every other story, that's both on a national level. We see it with the Jewish people. We understand that the Jewish people, every, like this is what we said in the Hanukkah class, that every exile that we go through, the mother of all exile, the root of all exile is, is Egypt. But also on a personal level, that we always have aspects of our life that is our enslavement, that is our Egypt. And the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim and the whole um, the going through the, the Pesach Seder for us is supposed to be our way 
of manifesting into our life this concept of, of making personal breakthroughs. We know that that rich, Jewish rituals are just meant to, to be a, a point of connection, to bring potential into actuality. When I do this, I'm hoping to bring, when, whatever it is, whether it's the Passover Seder, whether it's reading the Megillah on Purim, whether it's shaking the Lulav on Sukkot, whether it's lighting Shabbat candles, right? This little act is supposed to be the point of connection, the conduit that brings whatever energy is connected to this act into actuality. So when we open up the Passover Seder and in the Haggadah, we say, this is part of the introduction to when we're about to tell the story, where we say that every single person is obligated to tell over the story and see themselves as if they themselves went out of Egypt. That means that when, when that's not, it doesn't just mean, you know, imagine something that's not true. Yes, let's pretend. Let's all put on, we, we do this at our Seder just to make it fun. We all, we have costumes, right? So we'll put on the, the Pharaoh hat or whatever. So, you know, we play the little games and, and, and it's fun. But what it really means is to see this journey as your journey. And, and that we all have, we all, if you are human, if you're a human being, that means that you have aspects of Mitzrayim, you have aspects of Egypt in your life. And part of your life mission is to experience your own Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Chayv Adam, you're obligated to see yourself, to see the story in your life. See where does it, re- and certain parts are going to speak to people in different ways. Because all of our lives are so different and yet so similar. And therefore, there's certain things that we'll find in common. And there's certain things that will be specific and that will be unique to our life. And what we're going to try to do is explore those things uh, in this series to, to the best of, of our ability. By the way, you know, when it says that Chayv Adam, the person is obligated to tell over the story. So it says, L'saper b'yetzias Mitzrayim. The word L'saper means to tell over a story. Right. But the word sipur, which is story, also means like, like a sapphire, comes from the word of, of saper, something that shines. Like we know in Kabbalah, the idea of the sfirot are the emanations of godly light. So it says that when a person tells over the story, a person is obligated lisaper to shine as they tell over the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. That when you tell it over, you're just supposed to be glowing. When you're telling it over to your children, to your grandchildren, at the Passover Seder, you're supposed to feel so connected to it that you're just exploding, you're glowing from it. And the only way really to do that is to be able to go deeper and deeper into it this year. So I've been spending a lot of time on it, really, just from the beginning. I started working on this um, when we actually began our series. Remember when I told you in the beginning of the book of Shemot, when we read it in the Torah portions, I started thinking a lot about these concepts then. A lot of them tie into the book that's coming that, that's coming out, as, as we'll see. So I've been very much into this. I'm excited to, to share this, uh, this series with you. So let's begin. I'm going to share my screen here. Okay, so, sorry about that. So at the Pesach Seder, we know that we have four cups. And again, if you were with me for last year when we were preparing for the Seder, so you might remember this, this hopefully will sound familiar, but why do we have four cups at the Passover Seder? So the Talmud, the sages of the Talmud say that the reason why we have four cups, just in case you're not familiar with this, I know that you all are, but just in case you're not familiar with this, that over the course of the Seder, we drink four cups of wine. One in the opening when we're making Kiddush, the other one at the end after we tell the story, 
is the second cup. The third cup is after we have our meal and then say the Birchat Amazon, the grace after meals. That's when we have the third cup. And then the final cup is after we say Hallel. That's sort of the, the breakdown of the Seder. It's Kiddush. It's a couple of the rituals that we do in the beginning. Then we tell over the story. Then cup number two. Then we have the matzah, the moror, and eat the meal, cup number three. Then we do what's called halal, which is reciting the halal. It's the, actually the, the same halal that we say in synagogue on the various holidays. And then halal means praise, uh, verses of praise to God. And then we have the final cup. And then we sing some fun songs after that, like... Um, Chad Gadya, you know, the one about the goats and things like that. That's sort of like the post game, you know, when everyone's a little tipsy from the four cups. But we're supposed to have these four cups of wine. So our sages, the sages of the Talmud teach us that the four cups correspond to the four expressions of deliverance. What is that a reference to? So in the story of the Exodus, in one of the prophecies, that Moshe, one of the early prophecies that Moshe has with God before the 10 plagues or anything like that, God says, these, God says in, in, in telling Moshe, don't worry, I'm taking these Jewish people that leave in Egypt. So God uses these four terms of redemption. The first one is, I will take you out from the Egyptian oppression. I'm going to take you out. We're going out. Number two, I will save you from their servitude. The third one, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And the fourth one is, I will take you to be my people. So God uses these four different terms. And based on these four different terms of redemption, our rabbis say we should have one cup of wine for each one of those things, sort of a celebration of these four different things. Now, the question obviously is, from a Kabbalistic perspective, we like going deep. Okay, it's very nice. God used four different terms, so we have four different cups corresponding to those four different terms. But why did God use four different terms? Numbers, as we know so well, because we've been learning together and we've been analyzing everything, we've been analyzing numbers, we've been an analyzing letters, right? We know already we're programmed that when you hear a number, you're just like, what's the deal with that number, right? There's got to be something there. So if God is using four different terms, and that's so significant that the rabbis say, oh, we, oh you, you should drink four cups of wine to remind you of those four terms, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, okay, why are those four? Why are, why are there four terms? One should draw the conclusion that if there are four terms of redemption, that must mean that either there are four different aspects of redemption, so there's and, and maybe there are four different struggles happening and the redemption was therefore not a not only one aspect, but there were four different aspects corresponding to the four different parts of slavery. Or one can say that chronologically it unfolded in four different stages. First this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Either one of those things would be a valid way to explain why God had to use four four things, but it can't just be random. Does that make sense? Any questions on that?
Okay, and then if you're if 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 you really want to get into it and you have sort of a Meshugana brain like me, then you'll ask you'll you'll want to take it a step farther and say, okay, you know what? What well, you know what, what would be really great? What would be really great is if they could both be true. What about if there were four different aspects to slavery? And therefore there were the redemption happened on four levels and therefore god had to spread it out into four different stages chronologically first this then this then this then this and each one of those stages corresponds to another aspect of that slavery because otherwise god could have just said okay you know god really could have at any point showed up and said jewish people it's time to leave Egypt. Let's drop a nuclear bomb where whatever that is, you know, in the form of, you know, I don't know, locusts seem great. That was a really cool one. The hail, everyone, oh, everyone loves the hail, whatever it is. Right? God just could have taken one massive plague, dropped it on the Egyptians, took the Jewish people out. Week later, we literally could have been on, you know, the beaches of Eilat having a shawarma in Israel with the Torah. I mean, you know, it, it didn't have to happen. It didn't need to be a whole book and many different Hollywood movies. Right? It didn't have to be such a complex story, but yet God chose to do this in a very, very complex fashion and very complex manner of four different parts. So what are those four different stages? Let's look at that first to see what those four different stages are. And then once we see what those four different stages are, let's try to look at what the four different aspects of slavery might have been. And then let's try to match up how each one of those stages of the Exodus correspond to that aspect of slavery. And I know that this sounds complicated and it is a little bit, but we're going to break it down and it's going to make beautiful sense. But Again, let's try to make sure that, that we're keeping score, which is why I, I have all these different charts, just to try to uh, simplify things a little bit. But again, this is the way we like to study. We like to break things down. We like to be very, very specific and really understand the specificities of things. So the commentaries say, in fact, what we're hoping that they would say, and Nachmanides speaks about it, the Siporno speaks about it, the, um, uh, the many, many of the commentaries uh, jump on this bandwagon and say that the four different terms of redemption actually do correspond to four different stages, because it did unfold in that way. What is the unfolding of things? So they say, that the first aspect of the Exodus was simply that the slavery stopped. The Jewish people were being enslaved by Egypt. They were very, very comfortable. When the Jewish people came down to Egypt, they came down, there was the red carpet rolled out for them. Remember that Joseph was there beforehand. He was the viceroy. And when the Jewish people uh, came down, was they were the small family of, of, of Jacob, um, and his sons, 70 people in total, and they had the red carpet rolled out. They had their own little shtetl, their own little neighborhood called Goshen. They lived together. They probably had a kosher grocery. They had the shul that everyone davened in and the shul that nobody davened in, you know, or maybe each one had the shul because they didn't like the other, the other guy's shul, you know, like the old Jewish joke. 
right? But it, 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 it was the ideal situation for them. If you're not going to be in Israel, this is where you want to be. And let's keep in mind as we go through the parallels between being in a Jew in America today. Because it, 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 is, it is frighteningly similar to that. Right, This idea of they were really, really comfortable there. And they had a lot of freedom there early on. But slowly, slowly, those freedoms started going away. Slowly, the anti-Semitism started rising. And eventually, the uh, Egyptian people, the Egyptian government figured out a way to enlist them in physical labor, which was supposed to be a joint project until the Egyptians bailed on the Jewish people and started enslaving them and forcing them to do that labor. So there was the physical labor and probably when you've watched the movies, when you've discussed it at the, at the Passover Seder, when you think about slavery, what comes to mind is this image. We were thinking about pyramids. We're thinking about the Jewish people and, and, and Egyptian taskmasters whipping them. So when you think of enslavery, you think about the physical labor. But I think over the course of the series, what I want you to be open to is that the physical slavery of Egypt wasn't the biggest problem. It was problematic, right? But again, that was only scratching the surface. Because when we look at exile throughout history, it wasn't always physical labor, but it doesn't mean we weren't exiled. And you can be free and you can not have, and you could feel free to walk the streets and make your own decisions and live how you want and even, you know, wear a kippah in the street if you wanted to. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not in exile. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are free from the perspective of what the Torah calls genuine freedom. So the first part, the first stage of the Exodus was stopping the physical labor because that's the most external, that's the most obvious, that's the most in your face. But that's only stage one. So as the plagues hit, blood, frogs, right? All that. So there was no more work. Jewish people were able to go home, get into their cozy beds, turn on the AC, and, you know, binge watch Netflix. And they were comfortable again. They were comfortable again. But that wasn't the end of the Exodus. That was only stage one. Because being in there and being in that environment was still problematic. So then they get to stage two. Stage two happens at the end of the plagues. And stage two is the actual leaving Egypt. Now, by the time they left Egypt, they had already stopped working. Which is why many times later, we're going to hear about the Jewish people saying, why did we leave? We should have stayed there. And you're going to be like, are you not so? You should have stayed there. You were enslaved. Well, the answer is, no, they weren't. Not by the time they left, they weren't. By the time they left, the enslavement had stopped. They were feeling freedom. They were able to, you know, kick off their slippers. So therefore, at that point, for them to leave Egypt, to go from Egypt into the desert, was already asking a lot for them because they're like, hey, listen, you know, bottom line is I'm not working anymore. I'm, I'm not enslaved anymore. I have my house. I have my two cars. They were, by, by the time the plagues were over, they had a lot of money as well. 
because during the plagues they got what do they call them Re- reparations is that what they call them payments right when they pay back right they they had paid them back a lot of the money that they stole from them during the enslavement period so the jewish people at that point in time had no reason to leave had they wanted to stay for them to leave egypt and go into a desert that was that was major self sacrifice so that was the 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 second aspect of leaving Egypt. And we'll talk about that a little bit more shortly. Okay, so they leave Egypt. (laughs) They leave Egypt. And now they're out of Egypt. They're already traveling in the desert. And uh, this is the beginning of the Torah portion called Parshat Bishalach, where God says, "Uh uh-uh, you think that you're out? You think that you're free? Watch what's going to happen now. And actually, God gets them, I think we, we might have spoken about this in the past, but just as a reminder, God gets them lost in the desert. So a week after they leave Egypt, the Jewish people are completely lost. And not only that, they find that they've they're almost made a U-turn. Right? This happens to be literally on road trips where, where, where we like, you know, we start driving and we're like, oh, you know, this is going well. And we're like an hour and we're like, hey, you know, what? something this is looking very, very familiar. And like we got off at an exit, you know, we're going, supposed to go south and the exit somehow got us back north. And we're like 10 minutes from our house. <laughs> and that's literally what happened to the Jewish people. They left Egypt. They started traveling and they w- went in a circle to the point that the face off between them, when Egypt starts chasing after them they're literally like i don't know they're just three four days right you know outside of egypt they're very very close so now the chase is on and the third stage happens outside of egypt when the egyptians are chasing them and now the jewish people have to go and travel into the sea the splitting of the sea and uh, into the sea the sea splits for them and the Egyptian people get wiped out, and that that is now the beginning of really several miracles that are going to be part of stage three. Included in that is them receiving the manna, a well appearing to them in the desert in the merit of Miriam, and the war against Amalek. That's what we spoke about uh, in the Purim class a few times. So stage three is completely ridding themselves from all of those enemies. But the exodus is still not complete because now we have to get into stage four and stage four is receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai. And that's when we officially become a nation. So the commentaries teach that the Again, just to keep score over here, the four cups correspond to the four different terminologies of redemption. The four terminologies of redemption correspond to the four stages of the Exodus, specifically the stopping of the physical work, the leaving of Egypt, the complete disconnection between the Jewish people and their enemies, and finally receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai. Those are just some of the basic details, just laying out the groundwork for what we're going to be speaking about. Any questions on this? Feel free to ask, because I know that I just said a a lot about the story, and some of it might have been new. So if you have any questions or any clarifications, please feel completely free to ask. Um, Sharing the screen again. 
we'll open up this conversation now and we'll share this a little bit more uh, next week. This is the, the, if we're trying to understand a little bit more as to those four aspects. And now really based on Adrian, based on your question and what we just said, we see now two aspects of it. We see two aspects of the enslavement. You know, if we had to stop here, if we had to stop here, we would say, okay, there was the physical enslavement and there was the spiritual enslavement. So we already see two different aspects of it, but that's two and we're looking for four. So where do we see these four? So there is a concept in Kabbalah. And again, this is the reason that I, what, what I told you before, this is really the concept that my upcoming book is based on, except my upcoming book is not on the Exodus. It's actually focused on, you know, much more on practical life, but it's going to tie into the series as well. And there is this idea that within every single human being, our construct, the different levels of ourselves, the different realms of our inner world can be compared to the four different elements. The four elements are earth, water, wind, and fire. When we refer to these as the four elements, so scientifically, you know, we see that everything exists as, in what, as either a solid, in form, as either a solid, a liquid, a gas, or what we would say fire is sort of the most formless. I think they, you know, they call it like plasma or something like that, but something that's beyond even a gas. But in, in Kabbalah, and in a lot of ancient thinking, when we speak about earth, water, wind, and fire on a more inner level, we're not talking about the actual elements that you can, you know, touch the, the, those physical elements. But we're speaking about how different realms of the human being, different parts of ourselves are represented through these elements. So we all have inside of us a piece of earth that doesn't mean, you know, a piece of rock that you can plant something in, but an aspect of our personality that is compared to earth. We have an aspect of our personality, of our build that's compared to water. We have an aspect that's compared to wind. And we have an aspect that is compared to fire. And the way that might translate into language that we're more familiar with is we have our most physical realm things that relate to our body, our survival, right? We need to eat, we need to sleep, we need to move, our bodies need to work, but that's just the most external part of ourselves. We're not just bodies walking around. We know that if we would peel away the mask of the body to our next level, we're full of emotions, our body doesn't necessarily require doesn't necessarily need pleasure if you take a look at again i'm not i don't know too much about animals i don't know too much right but again i've seen animals in action i see you give a pet you give them a good you know a, a nice piece of meat maybe they'll pull it apart you give them a nice piece of grass, they do it as well. I don't necessarily think that if you put on the table, you know, uh, less expensive dog food and then like really expensive sushi, that the dog would be like, oh, like we're having sushi tonight, you know? Like this is, you know, uh, you, know you put a little water or you put an expensive bottle of wine. I don't know that it makes a difference. That is a very human, right? Humans, as human beings, we're not just here for survival. We want this to be pleasant. We want this to be pleasurable. 
So, you know, beyond just survival, we want to have a life that is full of pleasure. And pleasure happens in the realm of our emotions. The greatest pleasure, the greatest level of happiness is one that comes with connection, loving people. The, the emotional pleasure that comes within a deep relationship is the, most, is, is the greatest pleasure one could have. It beats any sort of physical pleasure. That gives us the, perhaps the greatest possible joy is to feel love towards other people. And in as much as we're missing that, we look for other ways to fill that pleasure, to fill that pleasure need. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as to where the struggles might come about. But if you think about, again, the outermost layer of us is this physical body, survival. Deeper than that is our emotional level. We want, to, we, we, we want pleasure. We want to experience the, the, the finer, the more beautiful aspects of life and of the world. If we go a little bit deeper into ourselves, the next level, which has a little bit less form, is wind. And wind is the level of our thoughts, our communication. All of that is compared to wind. And that's something even deeper because that goes even beyond pleasure. That is, I want to know. I want to understand. I want to have meaning. I want this to make sense. Explain this to me. One of the reasons why we are here learning is because you want to be able to understand a little bit more of to like, I'm a Jew. What does that mean? So that's something that's a little bit deeper that's compared to wind. And finally, the, the most formless or the, the, the highest, if you will, level of ourselves is compared to fire in the sense that we want to be something. We want to take all of this, right? Fire really, it's this, this highest level really uh, incorporates the other ones. We want to take all of the other things and we want to go out and we want to matter. We want to be something, right? I don't think that when the lion hears that he's the king of the jungle, I, I don't think like it's an ego trip for him. He's like, oh yeah, I'm still the king, you know, coming back four more years, baby, right? It's not like, you know, it's, but as a human being, right, we want to matter. We want to know that we made a difference. So all of these different parts of us are compared to the four different elements, earth, water, wind, and fire. Here's a little diagram actually taken from the book where you can see, you know, we kind of made it like a bit of a Maslow's triangle over there, but just to see how this is sort of the construct. The four terminologies of redemption show that all four of these levels of ourself were enslaved in Egypt. We were there physically, that's our earth element. We were there emotionally, that's our water element. We were there intellectually, that's our wind element. And we were there on the level of our will, that's our fire element. We were completely there on all of those levels. Egypt was, in, was enslaving us on all of those levels. And therefore, the exodus, be, becoming free from Egypt, was becoming free on every single level, physically, emotionally, intellectually, and, and, and on the level of, of our willpower. I need a word for this, right? But uh, that rhymes with the other ones, right? But it was, it was becoming free on every single level. And as we're going to see in upcoming classes, the reason why God schlepped it out over these four different stages was that each one of those stages of 
the Exodus, correspond to one of those levels of ourselves. So whereas the first level was, was about stopping the slavery, that was about getting us physically free. Leaving Egypt was getting us emotionally free. Crossing the sea and experiencing those miracles was getting us intellectually free, and standing at Sinai was elevating us to the level of, of, of really becoming, giving us that self-esteem, that self-worth that we needed to become the Jewish people. And we'll see moving forward how within our own life, wholeness, completeness in our own life also happens on those four levels. On the level of body, on the level of emotion, on the level of intellect, and on the level of willpower. And for us, when we learn how to operate in those four different realms, to have freedom in those four different realms, that's when we experience wholeness in our life. That's when we experience that we are accomplishing our mission. And when we look at the different subtleties of what the Jewish people are going through during each one of those stages, we'll see that those are actually struggles that we go through in our life as well. So that's what's go- what we're going to explore deeply in the next three classes. So I hope that this was a clear introduction. I hope that you're excited to uh, unpack this together with me. And, uh, and I appreciate that you're, coming, that you're coming on. Any Any questions? Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and you can always go to rabbishlomo.com for more great content and resources and to connect directly with me.